How's it going, my fellow history scholars? Welcome back to the podcast where we talk about the unanswered questions of history and unravel the mystery of the many questions we ask about our past. Before we begin today, I'd like to introduce our special guest today, Jordan Freeland. Jordan, you want to say hi? Hey, everybody. Uh, he has gone to uh, Israel, and he's going to share some of his experience uh, historically with some of the stuff that he's seen, and uh, from what I've heard, it was a really good trip. Yeah? Yeah, it was. It was uh, pretty cool to be there and get to see so much history from just the span of thousands of years. That's awesome. I'm glad to hear it. All right. A few things before we begin. I'd like to remind you guys that the, the Facebook page is up, and uh, you guys can go check that for information on the episodes, as well as to ask questions and stay up to date on information concerning the podcast. Don't forget to show your support for the podcast by donating on Anchor, the awesome podcast server we use to make all of these episodes possible. And then in the end, we'll give some shout outs to you guys who have already liked the Facebook page, and uh, we thank you for the growth that it's been experiencing. Uh, it's been really good. And uh, Anchor's been good, besides a few technology issues here and there, but I hope you guys are enjoying it so far. Get a few episodes episodes cranked out for you guys while everyone's stuck inside, so hope you enjoy all right, let's jump into it. All right, I'll just start with uh, some basic questions and uh, see how you enjoyed your experience and uh, just some of the stuff you got to see and some of the stuff you got to do. Because uh, I did hear from uh, what you told us that it was a pretty amazing experience. So it should be an interesting episode today. I hope so. So how do you think this really all got started? How were you? Uh, how did you hear about this trip that you got to take to Israel? Yeah, so uh, I had recently graduated from seminary. I did a Master's of Divinity because um, I work as a youth pastor. And so I had gotten a lot of like theological training and learned Greek and Hebrew, um, things like that. My wife's alma mater, Judson University, uh, called us up one day and offered us a two-for-one discount on their master's program, uh, which is a master's of leadership in ministry and included a two-week trip to Israel. Nice. Um, and we've always wanted to go to Israel, so it was pretty hard to pass that opportunity up. We get to do school together, both get a master's degree, her first, my second, um, and it would help me do my job better, too, and better understand you know, the stuff behind everything. Um, so the Israel trip, <clears throat> that was really all about like, getting to see see it for ourselves. Um, so I've, you know, read and studied the Bible a lot of my life. Um, but to get to actually go there and, you know, see the things I've read about um, and experience the land and the culture, uh, that was really eye-opening. Oh, yeah, I bet. There's tons of history there, even uh, even outside of the Bible. Israel's history itself is uh, super colorful. So, Yes, it is. It really is. Imagine. And it's still going on, that's for sure. Yep, still a lot of, a lot of conflict. Still, that land has been fought over for millennia, and it's still happening. Oh, yeah. All the way back through the Bible and uh, the religious texts all the way up through the crusades and modern day stuff that's been going on. Yep. So that's how it all started uh, with your, with your program, your master's program through Judson and uh, 
just being able to do this program with uh with your wife and uh it was it was a win-win that it was yeah it's been fun to do together and get to experience that together too i bet if i if i got the opportunity i think i'd take that up too that's awesome i would highly recommend it to anybody so packing wise and uh getting there how did that all how did that all go yeah so so it was a two-week trip which means we had to pack quite a bit. Um, we knew it was going to be really hot. Um, and so we had to buy some special clothes. Like they recommended linen for its lightweight, um, but still protective qualities. Cause the vegetation out there is very thorny and we were going to be doing some hiking. So we needed to be able to cover our legs and stuff. Um, and, you know, linen pants are not very common in our climate or culture, so those were kind of hard to come by. Um, but yeah, we, we also had to pack multiple water bottles because in one of our hike days, it was 96 degrees and just scorching sun, and uh, it was an 11-mile hike through this insane valley um, along what's called the Jesus Trail. So we, we hiked part of the way from Nazareth to Galilee. Um, on the likely path that Jesus and his disciples would have taken, you know, for the same journey. Um, yeah, that day was brutal. We all brought at least three liters of water and we all ran out before we made it to the end. Jeez. Yeah. It's not a good thing. So the climate was intense. The heat was intense. In fact, two hiking days after that got canceled because it actually reached 113 degrees. Um, and that would not have been survivable for us. Um, with that kind of strenuous hiking, but, uh, yeah, it, it made for an interesting experience. Israel's a hotbed in many aspects, politically, socially, physically. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when we're out there in that kind of heat, it's not so surprising when you're reading Exodus and the Israelites are always going, you brought us out here to die. Like, can we please just go back to Egypt? Like we're going to die in this <laughs> desert. It's like, yeah, I get that now. They're not as whiny as I thought they were. You have the you have the background. You can see it yourself. Right, I felt that heat. That's good too, and that's how uh, that's how I think history should be taught. You should have a lot more actual experiences like that yourself, so you can see and live and breathe history. So you're not just reading about it in a in a dusty room, but you can actually see it yourself and you can interact with it. And uh, oh, I think yeah. what you got to do is pretty awesome. Yeah, to have it come off the page and into real life, that's that's something really unique. So, did you leave through O'Hare, or where did you guys leave from? Yeah, we left through O'Hare. Oh. Alright, it's rolling again. Sorry, uh, sorry guys. We lost him there. Technology issues. It's with everybody who's been on the internet and stuff during this time of crisis. Yeah, my Wi-Fi keeps going in and out because everyone's on it. All right, so, yeah, I was telling you, I don't remember where we stopped on the way there. I know we came through Canada on the way back, but, yeah, the travel experience itself was pretty easy. We just flew in and out of Tel Aviv, which is their main, you know, international airport, and oh. took a bus from there. I'm sure that was a long flight, though. It was. It was. It wasn't quite as bad as uh, I had to take a flight to South Africa one time. That was 16 hours. 
from like New York or New Jersey or something, and that was Israel was not as bad as that. Jeez. So how are uh, how were customs and uh, immigration and stuff when you got there? They were actually not that bad when we got there, um, but they were really intense when we were leaving. Um, yeah, I don't remember the customs experience on arrival at all, but I remember we just about got interrogated on the way out. We there was someone in our program who's she's like in her fifties or sixties. You know, she's got some gray hair. It's obvious she's not like a normal student age. And um, when we told the the officers at the airport that we were for a school group, they're like, "Really? She's a student." <laughs> And they started to get a little suspicious of us, I guess, and just asked a lot of questions. Jeez. Trying to keep everything safe over there, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. With everything they've got going on, I I can't blame them. Yeah. They got to do what they got to do. Yeah. All right. So once you got there, how uh, how did everything start, do you think? So we started off with a four day stay inside the old city of Jerusalem. So modern day Jerusalem is a pretty big sprawling city, you know, much like Chicago would be near where we live. Um, but the actual old city itself, like we were in ancient Jerusalem with the stone streets and buildings and everything. Um, and that's where we spent our first half of the first week. Um, so we came in through this massive gate called Zion Gate where you know, we saw this wall pockmarked with bullet holes from, um, from a 1948 war for independence. Um, like that gate had actually been built in the 1500s by Suleiman the Magnificent, Sultan of the Empire. Yeah. Uh, so we're walking in through a Muslim gate in a city, basically. So there's a Jewish quarter, a Muslim quarter, um, an Armenian quarter and a Christian quarter. So the city itself is really like divided. And when you walk from one quarter to another, like there's no physical barrier that tells you you've switched over, but it's like you're walking into a very different culture and it's kind of strange. Yeah, that's interesting. So the divide wasn't physical, but you could definitely tell the difference from one area to another. Yeah. So you went through you went through the Muslim gate built by Suleiman. Where did you? Yep. Uh, which quarter did you start in then? The Muslim quarter. Uh, so I think we ended up staying in either the Armenian or the Christian quarter. I can't quite remember. I know uh, the place we stayed was the Sephardic house, um, and it was pretty close to the Western or the Wailing Wall. Um, but yeah, I don't remember exactly which quarter it was. So you mentioned the Westing, the uh, the Western Wall, the Wailing Wall. Did you uh, yeah. Did you guys get to go see that and experience that? We did. That was actually how we ended our first day in Jerusalem. Um, so we went right around sunset. Um, after hearing what sounded like a rocket being blown out of the sky by Jer- Jerusalem's Iron Dome defense system. Um, but no one seemed to make anything of that, so we just kind of went about our business. Um, but yeah, to begin our first day in Jerusalem with hearing a loud explosion, it was like, this could be interesting. Yeah, that's um, a little scary. 
Yeah, but it was no big deal, I guess, because no one thought anything of it. I guess they're just used to rockets blowing up. <laughs> um, yeah, so we, we went to the Western Wall. It was you know, a pretty striking scene there. Um, like the especially ultra-Orthodox Jews, um, that is the most holy place for them. Um, it's the closest they can get to where the temple would have stood um, because it's, you know, the western wall of the Temple Mount. And so it's just a really, the emotion was really heavy there. Um, and it's called the Wailing Wall because they go there to mourn. They mourn the loss of the temple. They mourn the fact that they no longer have what to them was their you know, almost like an antenna that allowed them to connect with God. Yeah, right. After um, it was destroyed by the Roman and Jewish wars by the Romans. Right. And what's crazy is that in parts around the Temple Mount, not specifically at the Western Wall, but in other areas, the stones that the Romans threw off the Temple Mount are still there in a heap. Like the stones that made the temple and the walls of the Mount, like they're there. You can touch them with your hands, you know, 2,000 years later because it was in... I believe 70 AD that like that stuff hasn't changed. Yeah. And I find it interesting that, uh, if you guys have read the Bible before, Jesus mentions how, uh, he was going to tear down the temple brick by brick. And, uh, I think the Romans took care of that for him. <laughs> yeah. They certainly seem to have helped out that prophecy. <laughs> I find that interesting. And, uh, that's the only surviving wall. Obviously. Yeah. So that's At why it's so holy for them. So it makes sense why it's so holy for them. Because the temple was their 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 lifeline. The temple was the most holy place out of the entire religion of Judaism. Yeah. Yeah, so it really is like the Western Wall is just a place of lament. Um <clears throat> like people are reading from prayer books and they kind of rock back and forth as they read. Um and you know, they're reading in Hebrew or Aramaic um, and yeah, the only time we heard someone make uh, any kind of cheerful noise, some older Jewish man like shushed them was like, there's no happiness here. Um, and we also learned that like still to this day at Jewish weddings, they'll break a glass because something has to be broken to remember the temple that was destroyed. Like that's how central this is to them. It, it's part of their cultural identity now. This brokenness, this loss. Um, so yeah, that was just a really powerful experience to see that and see you know, how much it meant to them. And then we actually got to go a little bit under and uh, <clears throat> not quite under the Temple Mount itself, but in some tunnels that go around it, which was a really interesting experience too. Zedekiah? Uh, no. So Hezekiah's tunnel was a different day. Um, the Temple Mount tunnels <clears throat> apparently... They're very hard to get into, um, and we were lucky to be with a very well-connected tour group, um, and so they had an appointment for us and everything. And so the the tunnels that we went through actually run the length of the Temple Mount wall, and Under so the you Western can wall. see, yeah, yeah. So you go down right in front of the Western Wall, and you end up connecting with. Um, they've uncovered at one point the original street laid by Herod himself so you're standing wow. on the stones that led all the way Antonia which was on the northern end of the Temple Mount as uh, as Herod built it out 
And so you're seeing, like, you can touch and run your hand along these stones um, that Herod had put there. And, and you know they're Herodian stones because he has this special, like, bevel around the edge of them. That's like his signature architectural marker. If you see beveled stone, you know Herod right, had this structure built. And he had a lot of things built. Did you guys get to... What was it? Don't they have a? They have some building, some structure built by Herod in Jerusalem. I'm wondering if you know what oh, I'm talking about, huh? Quite a few, like the the Temple Mount. It was like itself. his his home or his palace or something. Yeah, yeah. So Herodium. Herodium. Uh, that was also you. on day one, <clears throat> and that's actually where they believe they found the grave of Herod the Great. Um, it was a super significant site for him. Um, it was the spot where I believe he, he lost both his brother and his mother. Um, or no. So actually his, he had won a battle after his brother had committed suicide and his mother had been run over by a cart and he himself almost took his life. Um, and that was the place where that all kind of happened. So it was on top of this huge hill kind of overlooking the surrounding land. Um, and so he built a palace fortress there and then moved he basically built a mountain around the palace fortress so he builds <clears throat> the fortress on top of what's already a mountain <clears throat> and then makes it an even higher mountain by bringing the earth all the way up to the top of the fortress walls interestingly enough um there's a point in the new testament where jesus is talking to his disciples and he says if you have faith the size of a mustard seed <clears throat> and you say to this mountain jump, it'll jump. Like basically you could mountains with faith. He would have been in a place where they could see this mountain that Herod literally moved. Yeah. And so he's pointing at this, telling them, look, mountains literally can be moved. The symbology and there. That's why I'm saying this to you. So <clears throat> it was super interesting, like being in these different places and seeing what, Jesus and his disciples would have seen, it's pretty clear that a lot of what he teaches them, he's probably pointing to something that they can see with their eyes and being like, look, like, see this, here's the lesson from what you're seeing with your eyes. And that's something that's, <clears throat> you know, it's hard for us to, to transfer that 2000 years later when most of us have never been there, or never seen it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I find it interesting. A lot of those peculiarities, it'll, uh, it'll mention stuff in the Bible and, uh, It'll reveal itself historically and conclusively through means that you may have not realized. Like Jesus said, I'll take down the temple brick by brick. The Romans did that. And Herod moved yep. a mountain physically, like you said. A lot of that stuff in the Bible and uh, based on historical findings is the connection between them is really interesting. What's well, so interesting, too, because you know one of the things we learned while we were there is up until pretty recently, Serious archaeologists used to laugh at the idea that the Bible was historically accurate. Like, they thought that was just a big joke. But the more they've excavated, the deeper they go, the further back in history they find things, the more that has changed completely. Yeah. So now the question isn't, like, is the Bible accurate or not? The question is, how accurate is the Bible? Because we know, like, more and more we're finding things that not far from physical old city Jerusalem, um, 
they found a little golden bell that exactly fits the description in the Old Testament of the little golden bells that would be worn on the robe of the high priest. That's and awesome. it looks exactly like the Bible describes it in documents that we know were written before the time of Jesus by at least hundreds of years. That's amazing. Yeah. So, yeah, I do find that interesting. Uh, people don't write these books for books for no reason. There is right. a there's a background to uh, to all mythology. There's something that that mythology is based off of, besides the supernatural, that at least some part is real. Because uh, they they found uh, Muslim cities like uh, Aram of the Pillars, which was mentioned in the Quran, and there's uh, there's Indian cities that have been mentioned in the the Bhagavadas and the other Indian religious texts that Indian archaeologists have found. So there's there's a basis for uh, for a lot of these texts that is yeah, real. There's a much a much closer connection to real grounded life than most of us realize. Yeah, exactly. So you that was day one. You got to see uh, the the Wailing Wall. Uh, day yeah. one, you went under the you went in the tunnels too, right? Yep. And then and we also uh, was, went to the Israel Museum. Yeah, so tell us about that one. Yeah, so the thing that most stuck out to me at the Israel Museum um, is they have what's called the Shrine of the Book there. Um, and outside of the Shrine of the Book and the museum itself, a beautifully detailed reconstruction of what the city of Jerusalem would have looked like just before its destruction by the Romans in 67 AD. And it's done at exactly a 1 to 50 scale. Um, so, you know, we got to see what the city probably looked like, where the different things are, like where the walls are, where everything is in relation to everything else, what the Temple Mount would have looked like and the fortress right next to it. Um, it was incredibly detailed. And, you know, Herod the Great was really the one who, who built the city out from what it was to what it's remembered as. Um, and we even saw like the three different layers. All right, sorry guys, uh, we lost Jordan again. Technology issues have been a little frustrating today, but hopefully, it won't happen again. Yes, hopefully. And so I mentioned that that model of old Jerusalem, and I, when I say model, it might sound like it's small, but it is not small. This thing is actually huge. Um, like the the Temple Mount itself was probably eight feet long in the model, um, just based on what I remember of it. Like it was bigger than me, and that's just one small part of this whole thing. So it's actually very large. Um, I'd encourage you to look up a picture of it, because you can see it for yourself. It's on the internet. Yeah, I actually um, did that while he was talking about it. And I, I'm like, Jordan, you got to mention it's not that small, because I'm like, wow, it's actually... That's a lot bigger than I thought it was. Yeah, it's quite impressive. Like a 1 to 50 scale, that's that's not small. Not when you're representing an entire city. Um, yeah, so I, I think the most interesting thing about that model itself for me was the temple itself and the fortress Antonia, which is connected to the temple. Yeah. Um, so these are both places that are really significant, especially in the New Testament. So when you're reading the New Testament... Like that's that's what you're reading about. It's 
Jerusalem as built up by Herod the Great with these fortresses there. Um, the place where Jesus goes on trial is the fortress Antonia right next to the Temple Mount. Um, or sorry, not Jesus, Paul is on trial there in front of a mob at least once or twice. Um, but you, you can tell pretty clearly, um, or at least you get a better sense for why you did the Roman occupation so much. Because that's the theme in the New Testament too. They're expecting the Messiah, the you know, long-awaited king and savior, to save them from Rome. Yeah. And he actually comes to save them from their sins and you know, the worst parts of themselves. But, you know, they're sick of Roman occupation. They're sick of all that happening. So they're expecting, like, a political ruler and king. And that's what Rome's afraid of, too. That's why Herod tries to have Jesus killed when he's an infant. Um, because he thinks there's a king that's going to usurp his power. Um, right. um, but, yeah, the fortress Antonia itself, it, it connects to this second story all over the Temple Mount. And there's this, this portico. Um, or a colonnade around the mount. And it basically provides Roman soldiers a balcony from which they can look down on everything that's happening in the most sacred and holy place for the Jews. So they're going to the temple to offer their sacrifices, to worship God, and they look up and they don't see God, they see Roman soldiers keeping an eye on them Mm -hmm. in the holiest place in their religion. And that would be infuriating. Right. Like, they're thinking, like... We're sick of these pagans being in charge of us and, you know, telling us how to live our lives and worship our God and trying to make us worship other gods. Um, so you can get a better sense, too, for why that was so frustrating and difficult. Yeah. Well, there's even the whole story with uh, the tearing down of the eagle because they put up the Roman eagle on the, the Temple Mount and they tried to rip that down. And uh, as you'll see, as you uh, if you study history more, uh, this conflict between the, the Romans and the Jews, it... it really divided them and uh it's ultimately why the temple was destroyed uh during the roman jewish wars yeah jews did not like when romans messed with the temple at all oh, yeah. but yeah so that was all outside of the israel museum inside um we got to see some pretty impressive stuff too that you know really connected history um one of the ones that stuck out most to me was a- an artifact that's called the uh I believe it's just referred to as the pilot stone. Um, and the reason it's called that is because it contains a reference to Pontius Pilate um, being the procurator of Judea. So we have this stone with Pontius Pilate's name and role carved into it, dated from the time the Bible says. 26 that to 36 AD. Yeah. Right. So. You know, they found this at Caesarea Maritima, I believe, mm-hmm. um, and it's in the museum now, the physical stone itself, but there's still a representation at this other spot where it was found. Um, but yeah, to see that, you know, it gives clear evidence that, okay, this historical detail is accurate. Um, like, he was who the Bible says he was at the time it says he was there. Um, the other thing was a copy of a first century heel bone found pierced by an iron nail, which lends credence to the biblical description of Jesus's crucifixion and the fact that his hands and feet may have been pierced. Um, That was a pretty significant thing that they found too. They, you know, they found a human bone with an iron nail driven through it. Um, 
probably from a crucifixion. So the other thing there, the oldest of all of the things that stuck out to me was the Tel Dan Stella. And that's a stone containing an inscription mentioning the house of David from about, about 200 years, 280 years after David was dead. And that shows that it's actually important that even hundreds of years later, bragging or someone won a military victor or victory over the Israelites. So what happened is this stone was an inscription by another people group bragging about how they defeated Israel. The and Phoenicians. in describing Israel, they called them the house of David. And the reason that's so significant is because one of the things archaeologists used to differ about was the importance or existence of David as king. So there are some who used to say, like the whole David Solomon suit was just a fabrication right. to give the Israelite people a national body. But a stone like this, almost 300 years later, mentions David as the most significant figure in Israel's history in order to brag about beating Israel means that he was no small player and that he was real. Yep. Yeah, it was going up against the Phoenicians, and uh, they were a pretty good empire in their own right. And hang on, guys, we're losing connection again here. All right, we got Jordan back, and yeah, I'm telling you, this technology is getting a getting a little annoying. <laughs> yeah, this probably won't be the last time that it happens. So sorry in advance. <laughs> so you were talking about the the Tel Dan Stila. Yeah, so it was just you know crazy to me that we have this physical archaeological evidence that King David was not only real and king, but that he was significant enough that his name was remembered 300 years later. And when they're bragging about defeating Israel, they're bragging about defeating the house of David, which means he was the most important king in their history, just as the Bible suggests that he was. Yeah, exactly. It's that physical, tangible proof right there that we've been talking about again. That's right. interesting. And uh, I've uh, I've heard of the the crucified bone. You were talking about that as well. That mm -hmm. that one was really interesting to me because uh, there's been a lot of theories that have been uh, developed off that as well. And oh yeah, it's interesting because uh, it it shows that the Romans really did use that brutal tactic of a uh, crucifixion. Right. And uh, there's always right going to be the doubters, but uh, this this proved it true. And that's you know that's what's so crazy to me about all this, and what really stuck out to me on a you know broad scale from this trip is that the more they find, like the more it's backing up the biblical account. Like they're not finding it to contradict it; they're finding more and more evidence in support of it. Yeah, it's very even all these thousands of years later, and that's what's so incredible to me. Well, that sounds like an amazing first day. Yeah, that was all day one. That's that's crazy. This was two weeks, you said, so. Can't even yeah, imagine. it was two weeks. The first week was especially jam-packed with, with uh, sightseeing. That's awesome. All right, so uh, moving on. Uh, what happened the next day? Or, uh, what, what was notable next? Yeah, so the next day, we actually began at a place called the Elah Valley, um, where we know the Israelites under Saul faced off against the Philistines and where a young shepherd boy named David 
prior to becoming king, killed the giant Goliath. Yep. Um, so we stood in a stream bed not far from the hills the Israelites would have been encamped on, perhaps in the very same type of stream bed that David himself gathered his five smooth stones from, one of which killed that giant. Um, so we actually stream bed home just as a reminder. Um, and I've got one on my desk still. Um, you know, that's, that was just pretty cool to me. So what's interesting to me that too is that there's this actually there's actually this really strong connection um, between the story of David killing Goliath in First Samuel 17 and Psalm 23, which is probably the most well-known psalm in the Bible, where David talks about uh, walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And the reason there's this connection is because of the Hebrew word used in each of those passages. Um, so the Hebrew word in both 1 Samuel 17, 3, and in Psalm 23, translated valley in English, is not the typical word used to describe just any valley. Um, in fact, this word specifically usually refers to something more like a ravine, something that has a stream bed running through it, a valley cut by water. Um, so the Hebrew word is gai, which is the more specific word, and the general word for valley they use most often in the Bible is emek. So there's this rare word used in both places. And just from what we know of this story, like if David's facing off against the Goliath, he might as well be staring death in the face. Because he's a little shepherd boy, probably in his teenage years, going up against this battle-hardened, war massive warrior who could kill him with, you know, his pinky finger probably. Right. And yeah, just, just to have that picture of standing there trying to imagine what he's imagining, it, it makes sense to me that that could be what he thought of when about the Valley of the shadow of death. And yet, you know, he writes about this and says, though I walk through the Valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod has to comfort me. So right. he knows and, this happens often in the Bible. When God tells someone not to fear, he qualifies that then with, for I'll be with you. And so here, mm -hmm. here's David saying, I'm staring death in the face, but I'm not afraid because God is with me. And we know that he defeated this giant miraculously, unexplainably, uh, um, and went on to become the most significant Israel. And so we get in the place, or at least very close to the place where that all happened. That's awesome. So that's actually the, is that the actual connection there between the Valley of the Shadow of Death and the Elah Valley? You know, that's, I learned that from my Hebrew professor in seminary. Um, and actually the professor that was showing us around there had not heard of it. So I don't know 100% <laughs> that that connection is there. Um, but when I, you know, was telling this professor all this, he was interested by it. And it seems like it's actually a, a possibility. Um, and it's, you know, a pretty good uh, string of reasoning that gets you to that point. Cause that word really is kind of rare. So the yeah. fact that it's used to describe both is not insignificant. Yeah, it does. Sound so I don't right. know for sure, but I think the Valley of the shadow of death is the Valley of Elah, the at Elah least Valley. to David. That's interesting. Yeah. So did you get to go to the winery? 
there's a winery there? That's what it says. <laughs> no, I didn't know that. We did get to go to some ruins on the top of the Israelite side um, that appear to have been built by later King David. Um, but yeah, no wineries. All right. So besides the Elah Valley, what else did you get to see? Lost connection again. Hope you guys uh, will still continue listening to the podcast after this. No. <laughs> It'll eventually get better. We're back. It's all right. Sorry, guys. It's it's not our fault. It's the technology. So. Yeah, we're doing the best we can here. Thanks for sticking with us. So you were talking about the Ela Valley. What else did you get to see by the besides the Ela Valley? Yeah, so we ended up hiking up to a site called Kirbet Kiafa. Uh, I may have totally botched that pronunciation, and good luck <laughs> trying to Google that. Um, in right. case you're interested, it's K-H-I-R-B-E-T-Q-E-I-I-A-F-A. Right. I've butchered plenty of pronunciations on this podcast in the past. So, <laughs> Yeah, so up there, it's this basically fortified town. Um, that dates back from the time of David and Solomon. So it is likely to have been built by either David or Solomon um, to defend the Elah Valley, which was a really strategic point in the land. So there's a lot of military history that goes into that. Um, if it was built by David, that's really interesting and significant too, because this, like that was the place where, you know, his whole journey to becoming king began. Um and so for him to have then come back as king and built this fortification there would probably have been really significant to him. Um, it's also possible that it was built by Philistines, but it does date from the time of David and Solomon, somewhere between 1050 and 980 BC. Wow. So, yeah, we got to walk on the ancient ruins and just walk along the tops of the old walls and see what's there. Um, Part of what lends credence to the idea of it not being built by anyone but Israel is the fact that at the highest point, um, the Acropolis, there was a palace rather than a temple. And so usually when you know pagan nations built a city at the highest point, the Acropolis, they would build a temple to a god. Right. And the Israelites were some of the only people who didn't do that because they had one temple for their one god. god. <laughs> right. And so the fact that it does not have a temple at this high point further suggests that it was not a pagan site. Um, so yeah, there's just some interesting stuff there too. That is really interesting. Yeah, then then we jumped uh, a couple thousand years forward in history for our next stop and went to a place called Mount Scopus, um, which is actually an overlook from which the Roman legions staged their final assault on the city of Jerusalem. Yep. Roman and Jewish wars we were talking about. God. Okay. All right, we're good now. All right, so we're back again. And Mount Scopus, where the Roman legions staged the final assault on Jerusalem from. Um, we learned there that Palestine was actually the name given to Judea by the Romans to antagonize the Jews after their second failed revolt ended in their being kicked out of Jerusalem. And that name comes from the Philistines, who even in the Old Testament were referred to with pejorative disdain. So Israel and the Philistines, they were not exactly simpatico 
Um, they did not get along. They hated each other. And at the Elah Valley, they had their big showdown, one of many throughout their history. Um, so Rome named Palestine Palestine just to make the Jews angry. Because nice. They like Philistine. Um, well played, Rome. Right. <laughs> So yeah, from there, we went down to the Garden of Gethsemane, and that was the final major stop for day two. Um, that's just down from Mount Scopus. And so we walked down a pretty steep incline toward what's called the Tron Valley, um, which is a valley separating the Mount of Olives from the Temple Mount. Um, so you would have to go down from the Temple Mount and come back up to get into the Garden of Gethsemane, yeah. because it's kind of on this this mountain face. Yeah, so it was literally um, a mount that the temple was yeah. on. Yeah, literally on a mount. Um, so there are these super old-looking olive trees that look like they could be 2,000 years old. And I was a little bit disappointed to find out that technically they aren't because uh, we know from the account of historian Josephus that Rome actually cut down all of the olive trees on the Mount of Olives. Um in preparation for their final stroke against the Jews. Um, so what were they using that to, were they using that to build siege craft and stuff yeah. inside the temple? Okay. Yeah. So they used the olive trees to build siege works. What I did learn that was interesting though, is that olive trees, they can actually like a new tree can grow from the stump of the old one. So even if you cut down the tree, if the stump is still there, a new tree will grow up from that. So the trees that we're seeing, while they're not themselves, you know, the trees that were technically there when Jesus was in that garden and praying, they have grown from the same stumps. Um, their shoots coming up from what had been cut down. And it's interesting, too. Yeah, so that's why they look like that. Yeah, they, they are ancient. They are. And what's really interesting to me, too, is in the book of Isaiah, it describes the coming Messiah as a shoot growing up from a stump that had been cut down. More and symbology. here we have this representation yep. of an olive tree that grew up as a shoot from a stump that had been cut down, and those trees are still there. So that's a pretty powerful and poignant kind of connection, too. That's awesome. Where that symbology. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so the Garden of Gethsemane, it was beautiful. It was peaceful. Um, it was not really in any way like I expected it to be. Um, yeah, we just we spent time there and we read through together one of the accounts of, um, let's see, I believe it was Luke 22, um, where Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so, yes, it was, it was cool to be in there and, you know, just read that together in the place where it happened. Um, and we did that actually at a lot of the sites that we visited. Yeah, that was the end of day two. That was interesting. I love the Garden of Gethsemane story. And uh, I have always found it interesting that uh, in, in the account in Luke, it says that uh, he sweat tears of blood. That yeah, That's crazy to think about. And uh, we know that's actually possible now, too, because uh, we have had people who, are, who have gone through uh, very stressful situations or uh, maybe they're on death row. And there's people that have actually sweat tears of blood, too, as Luke says in the, in the account. Yeah, so we have medical scientific documentation 
that human beings can actually sweat blood. Um, so even though it says his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground, it's certainly possible that that was actually what that was it actually happening. was. Yeah. This was the the fi final moment pretty much before uh, Jesus was going to go to crucifixion too. So it's a really powerful place. Oh yeah. And, and part of what's so powerful about it is like Jesus who, you know, if he is who he says he is, is both God and man in this moment, he is a vulnerable, traumatized human being who is facing an incredibly difficult fate. He's been abandoned by his friends when he needs them the most because they can't even stay up to pray with him. They're all sleeping. And he knows they're all going to abandon him after he's crucified. They just fall asleep over and over again. Yep. Um, so we actually talked about trauma while we were in the garden and how trauma is is really what happens when the people who are supposed to be there for us aren't paying attention and aren't attuned to us. Um, and to think about the fact that Jesus himself experienced that, like that just really lends credence to the idea, whole incarnation to begin with, that God would become a human being, would experience even some of the most difficult things that we experience. So like we have a God that's, not foreign, not distant. He has gone through it himself. Like that Jesus experienced trauma in the way that we experience trauma and abandonment and disappointment and all this stuff. Like that's just crazy to me. It's just the humanity and the beauty of that. Yeah, that is really quite amazing. Yeah, so that was a great way to end that day. <laughs> so that was the end of day two at the garden? That was the end of day two. All right. What about next? What happened next that was exciting? Um, well, next we stopped at the Room of the Last Supper uh, to begin day three. That's awesome. Which is interesting because it has connections to Christian, Jewish, and Muslim history. Um, so as far as Jewish history goes, it's supposed that this was the location of King David's tomb. Um, so really? under the room where the Last Supper is supposed to have happened is a marker for, you know, King David's burial. Um, wow. Wow. So traditionally, that's where David is buried. Uh, traditionally, that's where Jesus had his Last Supper um, with his disciples. And it also, at one point, had been turned into a Muslim mosque. So when you're in the room of the Last Supper, you're actually seeing, like, Arabic symbols yeah, on the a Arabic glass script. window. Yeah, yeah. And um, the Arabic script, and also, I believe we saw some symbols from the Knights Templar. Um, there was this, awesome. or sorry, no, it was the Crusaders. A, some stone-carved pelicans, which were a Crusader symbol of sacrifice. Um, and, yeah, because I guess babies take food from their mother's belly, and thus she sacrifices her own body for them, is the history or the explanation behind that. Yeah, so we saw all kinds of stuff all coming together here. Um, so that was pretty interesting. Well, you say, you say Crusader, well, it, it could have been Templar too, because Templars were Crusaders. Right, so there is that connection as well. Do you know what, uh, do you know what Crusade this dated to? Or do they not uh, know that? I do not. It, it would probably be whichever Crusade they actually took control of Jerusalem in, which 
was not many of them because they were not very successful. Well, we know general. we know they were successful in the first crusade, so it had to okay. be after that. Yeah, so it might have been that one. That's interesting, though. That all three of those connections, I knew the, I know I knew the whole story about the Last Supper, but I didn't know that King David may have, that King David was buried there and that it was turned into a mosque. That's really yeah. interesting, actually. It has that. It has that three connections with it, uh, very similar to the Hagia Sophia in Constantinople, which was also oh, a yeah. mosque and a Christian site. Very true. Yeah, so just the connectedness of everything is pretty impressive and surprising at times, too. All right. We're back. Okay, so from there we went to the city of David, and I mentioned that's where that golden bell had been found. Yeah. Um, from the high priest's robe. So one of the first things we did in the city of David is we went down to a place that's kind of benignly known as the large stone structure, um, which is a super ambiguous name. I have heard of this. For a place that actually might be very significant. So... Again, this goes back to the differences of opinions on King David. Um, but this may have actually been David's palace, because it's in the city of David. It's the most significant structure there. Um, it actually has all these clay seals that seem to be like a king's inscription on them, um, and that still survive because they have probably been baked in the fire that destroyed the building. So... Lots of signs there point to it being David's palace. Um, we don't know with 100% certainty, but that's that's really what it seems to be. And this was in the, the oldest part of Jerusalem? Right. That's the city of David. Yeah, the, even the ancient city of Jerusalem is bigger than David's Jerusalem. So David's Jerusalem is tiny compared to... Uh, the rest of it. It was just this little town, basically, smaller than what we even think of as a town. It was more like a village or a settlement. Wow. So that's really yeah. cool. And uh, it's there that we got to go through Hezekiah's tunnel. That's awesome. Kind of I have heard of that one too. All of its own. But yeah, that's another piece of history. Um, that we, you know, get to see from the Bible too. Uh, what did you think about Hezekiah's tunnel? Uh, it was pretty dark. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's just, it, it's brilliant what it did. Um, it, it took this natural spring and brought it um, inside the city walls, basically, so that the Assyrians... You know, couldn't pollute it or poison it or cut them off from their water supply um, when they're laying siege to it under the time of Hezekiah. Really kind of an engineering part of that time. Mm -hmm. um, and we learned that they started with two teams of people trying to dig toward the center and meet each other, and they missed a little bit. And so there's this bend that takes a sharp angle, and the two separately dug tunnels finally connect. Um, this start yeah, by the Pool of Siloam? It comes out of the Pool of Siloam, yeah. That's cool. Yeah, so that was an interesting experience. Basically, you know, 
we're walking through this tiny little tunnel and uh, walking through icy cold spring water with a mountain on top of us. And it's pitch black if you don't have flashlights. So uh, claustrophobic people tend to have trouble with it, but oh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed that experience. What about you? How was your experience? Oh, I loved it. Like, to get to walk through history like that, that it was incredible. Um, and, you know, that's something that's, it, it hadn't been discovered until I think the 19, 18 or 1900s. Like it had just filled up with silt and it fallen into disuse and people didn't even know it was there. Um, so the fact that we can go through it now and see it is pretty cool to me. 1837 by Edward Robinson. Okay. That's yeah, when it was that sounds right. Yeah, so pretty much, uh, I, I've heard about this story too. So pretty much, uh, Jerusalem was under siege, and uh, they wh- wh- were they trying to escape, or were they trying to get water into the city? So the the water used to end up a little bit outside the city. That's where it would pool and kind of stay. Right. Um, so what they did was bring the water inside the city so that they could outlast the siege. So they were trying to bring water in. Yeah. Okay. Pretty clever. Didn't, uh, didn't he try to escape out of it, though? Uh, who, Hezekiah? Yeah. Or was that another king that I'm thinking about? Um, so it's, it's connected to um, this strange tunnel that David would have used to actually capture the city initially. Um, yeah, I have heard about that, too. Yeah, so it, all of that stuff is connected because it's through the spring that that tunnel... Um, accessible. So there's a lot of different historical connections there too. That's cool. Yeah. So yeah, it comes out by the Pool of Siloam, mm-hmm. which is uh, a significant place in the New Testament. Um, and not far from there um, is the Temple Mount. So from the Pool of Siloam, you can ascend. Well, when we were there, it was kind of like a just a drainage sewage tunnel. Um, but they are working on a pathway um, that basically mirrors what it would have been like to ascend from the Pool of Siloam to the temple. So the Pool of Siloam is where um, Jews coming to Jerusalem on pilgrimage for the temple would have um, washed and purified themselves before right. going up to the temple. So we went from that pool up to the temple Um and stood at the corner where Jesus would have flipped out at least once um, and gone on his table-flipping, reed-whipping rampage. Um, yep, that's a good story. <laughs> yeah. So we actually stood in some of the stalls uh, outside the Temple Mount where things would have been sold, like animals, and money would have been exchanged. Um, so there's all kinds of really interesting stuff there. Um, and it was not... a in any way what I expected it to look like. I always kind of pictured that as happening like within the temple grounds, but it's actually just outside of it. Um, And so you're looking up at the temple when you're standing in the place where the money changers and the sheep salesmen would have been. Um, And that's where Jesus, you know, would have had this kind of outburst. Yeah. So for those of our viewers who don't know, uh, pretty much this was a story where uh, Jesus had seen, uh, 
pretty much uh, people trading in the marketplaces and uh, businessmen doing their doing their trades and stuff. And uh, some of it was even for uh, buying sacrifices to bring to the temple. And uh, he pretty much went on his tantrum. Uh, he didn't like that they were selling things and uh doing business in uh god's temple because it was sacred so he flipped all the tables and stuff and so it's cool yeah. that you got to see that and part of that seems like the primary reason for jesus's wrath was really because the priesthood or the temple administration was ripping people off for their own gain so the people who are supposed to be the spiritual leaders of israel um, is not a fan of that. That's unjust. That is in no way, you know, what God's chosen leaders should be like. Um, and he let them have it for it. Yep, that was one of the, that was a good story. I remember that one. Yeah, that's also where you see this massive pile of stones from 67, um, and so that, like those stones are still sitting there. You can even see the of that wall of the Temple Mount. So after uh, after the marketplace, what else did you see? After that, we finished the day off by going to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Um, which is a, well, that place is just real interesting and oh, real yeah. frustrating. Um, so the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is traditionally the most likely for Jesus' burial and maybe crucifixion, too. Um, as far as evidence for those claims goes, it would have been outside the city walls at the time. Um, tombs were found there, and a Roman temple of Venus was built there to discourage Christians from praying at the location. Yep. So even early on in history, this was the spot that Christians would come to to remember the crucifixion. And there's so a whole the century, conspiracy about that between uh, between the Templars and uh, the Temple of Venus that was built there in Jerusalem. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, so I've kind of hated this place, honestly. Um, it, it belongs to all denominations. But a Muslim family has had to keep the keys for the last 500 years because the Christians can't get along. <laughs> um, the whole place felt overwhelmingly oppressive to the senses, overcrowded, like kind of spiritually commercialized in a really frustrating way. Um, but there was this one overlooked room that had been accidentally burned at some point. An oil lamp had spilled over and broken, and the heat from the fire cracked the plaster walls and actually exposed a tomb from the second temple era, um, which yep. is when Jesus would have been crucified. And there was so, a whole national geographic, uh, whole national geographic documentary that they did on this. And yeah, a lot of the, a lot of the filming they even tried to do with, uh, the discovery of this tomb was, uh, really hard to do because of all the, the quarreling between the denominations. It's, it's embarrassing. It really is like it. Yeah. It shouldn't be that way, but it is that way, and I don't get it. But yeah, this, these tombs, they're in this overlooked, out-of-the-way room. Honestly, that alone makes it, in my mind, more likely that this was probably Jesus' tomb. Because just from the kind of life that he lived, it, it just seems like it would have been overlooked and out of the way. And that's 
probably the way you would have wanted it. Mm-hmm. Um, so we stood in, in these, you know, really tiny tombs. Um, and what's crazy, too, is we ran into this trio of Assyrian Christian women who are among the only people group that still speak ancient Aramaic, the language Jesus himself would have spoken. And so we're in the room where Jesus was likely buried with Christians who still speak the language Jesus spoke. And then they were kind enough to both recite and sing for us the Lord's Prayer in Aramaic. Wow. So we were hearing it um, in the language that Jesus would have said it in, which was just really beautiful and powerful. And that wow, was yeah. such a weird coincidence, but really cool. So... There's a difference between uh, what's called the Garden Tomb and the, the Tomb of Christ that's actually in the Temple Mount, right? Yes, yeah. So I also went to the Garden Tomb that day. Um, that wasn't part of the trip itself. That was kind of like an excursion. Um, so it's very different. The Church of the Holy Sepulchre is mostly run by more orthodox, traditional branches of Christianity. Right. Um, the Garden Tomb is... It feels like it's run by non-denominational Protestants. Like, there's nothing really ornate or special about it. They give you a pamphlet when you get there that says, hey, we're not saying for sure this is the place, but it might be. So we made a garden here for you to enjoy. Yeah, I heard about the... uh, Like, this is it. This is tradition. Like, believe this. Mm -hmm. I heard about the archaeological excavations of that. And it uh, it was really controversial because, like you were saying, it was... uh presenting something contrary to the tomb of Jesus. Uh, they were saying that this right. could also be it. Right. So either one could be the place and we don't know for sure, but it's likely that one of them is. Yeah. And uh, I want to go back to the, the tomb of Christ on the temple Mount or in that area, because uh, that one's really interesting too. There's a little, uh, there's a little portico above the actual tomb itself. Uh, did, were you able to get up by the tomb? Uh, so we went up on the second story of the church, but the line was very long for the tomb itself. It was like Disney World long, and yeah, I bet. were about that. Yeah, but there's a there's an interesting uh, tower on top of the tomb, and uh, it's it, it's round. It's this like portico type thing, mm-hmm. and uh, it's supposed to, or at least Scott Walter believes that it reflects uh, the Newport Tower. And uh, Newport, uh, Rhode Island, and that uh, the Templars may have, uh, yep, that the Templars may have got their uh, idea of building uh, Templar roundtrackers because we do have one in uh, in England that they that we that they built and that we do know that they built these for sure. And uh, they, Scott Walter thinks that the Newport Tower was one of these. And uh, if you look at the the portico above Christ's tomb, uh, that's that's the reflection that it's supposed to represent. So I found that interesting. That is really interesting. And it's, I mean, it's at least somewhat believable, too, because within the church itself, there's a mixture of Roman and Crusader architecture. And you can tell by the distinct difference between their arches. So Roman arches are just round and smooth. Crusader arches always have like a point at the top. And there are places where the two arches are like layered right next to each other, where it seems like they just slapped in another one for some reason. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that that whole thing was interesting and odd. And uh, another part of that National Geographic documentary I was talking about, uh, they actually 
they somehow with all the disputes and stuff that goes on there were actually able to get inside there and they lifted up one of the stone slabs and they actually found a crusader mark on the tomb itself that they had carved into the stone and it's a it's a crusader cross very similar to the to the average cross that would have looked like the the templar cross so oh, that's interesting interesting too they did very much have their presence in there oh for sure yeah no doubt about that and i'm sure you got to see a lot of that as well. Yeah, we did. Honestly, though, aside from um, being in that little out-of-the-way tomb that was probably actually Jesus' tomb and hearing the Lord's Prayer in Aramaic, my favorite part of that experience was Okay, let me know when to start again. Yep, we're good. We're back. <laughs> All right, so one of my favorite parts of that was getting to meet the keeper of the keys, um, who is just this like really nondescript guy named Omar. <clears throat> like I mentioned, this Muslim family has had to lock the church up every day for the past 500 years because the Christians can't get along, and Omar is the guy right now. Right. Um, so my one of our professors actually remembered him from the previous year and went up to him when he was just sitting there waiting in the crowd because he just pretends he's like everybody else. Um, he's like you're the guy, aren't you? And Omar goes, no, no, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> um, but he ended up being the guy, and then he like called us over after he locked it up to take a picture with him. So we have a group picture with Omar, the keeper of the keys. That's cool. Yeah, that was just kind of an odd, funny little thing. Oh, and then that day ended with a 4.6 magnitude earthquake as well. Jeez. So that made things interesting as well. <sighs> That's crazy. You guys got to experience uh, some interesting stuff besides the history there. <laughs> yeah, we, we really ran the full gamut. All right. So I want to make sure that we uh, that we squeeze this in because uh, you guys may have remember that I uh, mentioned somebody in our in our Knights Templar episode that got to see the, the Horns of Hatton. That was Jordan. Yes. That was Jordan that, that got to me. see that. And uh, now we're talking to him. So you want to share some of your experiences with that? Yes. Yeah, so that was uh, hike day. Um, that was the day where it was 96 degrees, really hot, and we all felt like we were going to die on this trail. Um, <laughs> but on the way from Nazareth to Galilee is this hill called the Horns of Hatton or the Horns of Hattin is mm -hmm. how they would say it. Um, and that's the place where this major last stand of the Crusaders went down. Um, so to me, it was just a big, annoying hill that I had to climb up and down. Um, I think you might actually know that story better than I do. So why don't you say a little something about that? Yeah, so that was during the Third Crusade uh, when Salahuddin had uh, the Crusader army trapped in this in this valley. And it was, like you were saying, scorching hot. And it was uh, these really terrible conditions that they went through. And uh, you guys... Re may remember us talking about it back in the Knights Templar episode, so I, re I recommend you guys go back and check that out. But uh, it's a it's a real interesting place, and uh, this was one of the most uh, one of the major defeats that uh, the Templars and the Crusaders ever faced during the Crusades. And if you have to hike. <laughs> All right, how much time we got left here? Uh, as much as you want, really. 
We're well, pretty close. Let's close with just one more interesting thing. Yeah. That has proven to be somewhat mysterious. The Dead Sea Scroll. Yes. I love these. Uh, so that was just day four for us. And obviously we're not going to get through the whole first week here because it would take way too long. Um, but Qumran and the Dead Sea Scrolls, that was an experience too. Um, so the Dead Sea itself, it makes a lot more sense to me why they call it the Dead Sea because literally everything around it is dead. Yeah, like, and I've heard it's the saltiest no sea on the earth too. Yeah, it is. And it's, it's so salty that if you go into it and have cuts on your body that you don't know about, you won't know about it. It will burn. Know about and it will hurt very bad. And you also can't, like normally in water, you can walk out and, you know, keep walking deeper and deeper. But it's so buoyant because of the salt content that there comes a point where you can't keep walking. You just start floating. Um, yeah, it's, it's a very strange experience. Um, but Qumran is this settlement near the Dead Sea um, where there's that had functioned as some sort of factory for specialized pottery to hold scrolls. And so there are actually 11 caves not far away housing the Dead Sea Scrolls. Right. Um, were initially discovered, and that, that number actually increased to 12 as of two and a half years ago. Um, so a 12th cave was discovered. Um, at that point, it was just a year and a half prior to our visit. Um, these trolls have been found south all the way to Masada, which is another in Jewish history that we definitely will not have to get into. But it seems like that Qumran may have been fleeing to Masada, trying to escape the last push of the Romans trying to wipe out the and stashing these scrolls in the caves along the way. Um, and so that's why we see them moving south toward Masada. So Qumran, there's this group of people there, at least we think this group of people was there called the Essenes, yep, the Essenes. who are kind of a mystery of history in and of themselves. Like They're never mentioned in Jewish literature, um, but we know that they're a sect of Judaism that lived very much apart from the rest of it. They were said to number somewhere around 4,000, but the excavated site at Qumran could probably only house about 150. So it may have been that the community there was just a splinter group of the splinter group. Yeah, right. Um, there may have been more. Yeah. So there were probably a lot more. Um, and at this, like, we don't know for sure that they're connected, but it seems like they kind of have to be. Because when you're standing in the ruins of Qumran, you can look and see cave four of the Dead Sea Scroll Caves, like literally a stone's throw away. So if you're living cool. at this Qumran community, you see the Dead Sea Scroll Caves, and it just seems like there's no way they weren't connected. Yeah, those caves are right there. Yeah, they're literally right there. Um, so that's we got to see all that too, and experience the desert heat and the Dead Sea and and all that craziness. And the, the best part about that day, this one actually goes back to David, and then we'll kind of wrap it up. It's a place called En Gedi. So the Dead Sea and everything around it, there's no life except in this place. So En Gedi, like once you get close to it, you start to see things actually alive. Like there's vegetation, there's some 
uh, trees, and it ends up being this alcove cut into a cliff face where there's a natural spring. Um, and because there's water there, there's life. And it's just this beautiful, like, desert oasis. But here in En Gedi, it's lush and green and beautiful. And that's actually the spot where we know that uh, David, who was running from King Saul at the time, had the opportunity to kill Saul, but just cut Oh, off this the was the cave that he went into? Yes, yeah, so the cave that that happened in was at En Gedi. And some of the Psalms were pretty clearly inspired by En Gedi because there's a waterfall there known as David's Waterfall that we um, played cool. around in and broke the rules by jumping under. But <laughs> it's totally worth it. Um, yeah, I'm forgetting the number of the Psalm off the top of my head, but it talks about how in the roar of your waterfalls, all your waves and breakers have swept over me. And when you're standing there, you hear the roar of the waterfalls. And it's this place where David felt like God kept him alive in the desert, in the wilderness, because there's no other way to stay alive but with this water and this life and the vegetation. And God kept him safe from King Saul. Um, it's where part of his character was forged because he refused to kill God's chosen king. And it's just a really beautiful and significant place. Yeah, that's, that's most of the highlights for the stuff that we saw during our time in Israel. Yeah. We'd have to do a part two if we wanted to include everything. <laughs> yeah, we definitely would. If you're up for it, I, I wouldn't mind. I'd be down for that if you are. All right. See what the viewers think. I, I have had a, had a good experience here listening to some of the stuff you got to see and the historical places you got to experience and uh, the stories you shared uh, were all very interesting. And, uh, oh, yeah. For that. Truly an incredible trip. It really sounds like it. I wish I had gotten to go. That Someday cool. maybe you will. I plan to. I want to get out there one day. Yeah, like I said, I'd recommend it. All right. We're going to wrap it up, and uh, thank you, Jordan. Yeah, thank you. All right, we'll wrap this up, and then next week we'll have another episode on a historical subject, and uh, maybe it'll be part two of the series that we started doing with uh, our interview with Jordan. Uh, I, I definitely want to hear more. I think uh, the viewers are going to like it too. So it's been interesting. As usual, I'd, uh, I'd like to give a shout out to Anchor, our podcasting service that has been a miracle in making this episode. And I uh, really couldn't have done it without it. Like I was saying, uh, it's been good besides a few kinks here and there. Uh, more importantly, I want to give a shout out to you guys as our listeners. And as we continue to embark on this podcast, uh, I thank you to all of those who have been liking the Facebook page and have been following that. Uh, make sure you're staying up to date with that. Uh, it's been like the lifeline for uh, the entire podcast. If you uh, want to hear more, you want to see live episodes, you want to see pictures and uh, get links and more information, go to that, and that's where all that will be. All right, and uh, we give a special thanks to Jordan for uh, letting us interview him today. For the for his experience in Israel, you want to Happy say anything? To be here. You want to say anything before we close, Jordan? Uh, thanks for sticking with us through the technical difficulties. Yeah, right. Sorry about that, guys. Uh, hopefully, you were all able to more or less understand it. We're doing our best. Yes, we are. All right. All that being said, uh, thanks, guys, and have a nice week. This is Jacob.
And this is Jordan. And Carpet Dime. Have a good one, guys. 